If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Psychiatry first emerged in the United States in the early 18th century. Asylums threw open their doors, offering to cure up to 80% of people with mental illnesses. But as the decades passed, treatments became more destructive, with thousands of patients suffering in the name of progress. Sociologist Andrew Skull is the author of a new book on this subject called Desperate Remedies, and Rhiannon Davis spoke to him about the discipline's difficult history. So when did psychiatry first emerge in the US? It started to emerge in the 1820s and 30s, when America began to build asylums. And the main asylum building came a little bit later in the 1840s and 50s. But really, the origins of psychiatry, not just in the United States, but but also in Europe, was around that period. And in essence, the creation of the asylum system and the emergence of psychiatry as a specialized branch of medicine was sort of a chicken and egg situation. They they both emerged at roughly the same time. The asylum, in a sense, gave birth to psychiatry, and psychiatry in its turn provided the justification for the asylum system and supported the claim that by building these asylums and running them in the correct way, the mentally ill could be cured. And the sense was at the beginning of this process that they really knew how to do this and they'd be able to cure 60, 70, 80, sometimes even more than that percent of the the patients that they treated. So it was a period at the outset 
of extraordinary optimism that later on was dubbed the cult of curability, the, the notion. And there was a rather funny statement that in the middle of this by one of the early psychiatrists. And he said, well, insanity is as easily cured as the common cold. Well, as we know, we still can't cure common colds. So it was actually a fairly accurate statement, but not in the way uh, this particular doctor meant. There's one qualification I need to put in here, and it's it's something that relates to language. We're going to see that in a number of contexts as, as this interview proceeds. But psychiatry wasn't called psychiatry when it first emerged. One of the terms that was used was mad doctor, which has an interestingly double meaning, I think. Pretty early on, they called themselves a superintendents of asylums for the insane. Uh, or then they used a term derived from the French one of the French terms for, for mad, aliené, they called themselves alienists. And it was only towards the end of the 19th century that the German term psychiatry came into use. Now, when I talk about superintendents for asylums of the insane, that immediately raises hackles in the modern world. Terms like lunatic and insane, quite rightly, uh, are things that repel us because they carry with them a tremendous burden of uh, stigma. Unfortunately, changing language isn't usually sufficient to remove the stigma. And one of the features, I think, of the treatment of mental illness down through the centuries, even before psychiatry emerges on the scene, it is a condition, a form of suffering that on top of what the mental illness brings in its train has this overlay of social disparagement and just general rejection that I think exacerbates the whole problem in a, in a quite massive way and unfortunately persists all the way down to today and attempts to alleviate that problem are extremely unsuccessful for the most part. So what was called a madhouse early on becomes an asylum, becomes a mental hospital or in America becomes a state hospital to even lie the, the, the mental part of things. But everybody quickly recognizes what's going on. And so sort of reform by word magic doesn't do much. So thinking then about those asylums, you mentioned that there was a lot of optimism in treating people with mental illnesses. But how did they try and treat people in asylums? Part of the sense was that it was the chaos in the surrounding society, the uh, unleashing of people's ambitions, the geographical mobility of people, the upsetting of traditional social arrangements, were all putting stress on people. And they couldn't cope with the pressures of the environment around them. We look back at the early 19th century and see it as a sort of idyllic age before all the stresses of modern life, but they felt equally that their society, they'd just thrown out the British. So they thought mental illness had, in many ways, an environmental cause, or at least the environment exacerbated mental instability. And by contrast, the asylum was a carefully designed mechanism, in their view, which created a kind of order, reduced the stresses on people. It was a retreat in the names of some of the most famous early hospitals, the York Retreat in England, which is where this form of moral treatment began, 
But in America, there was something called the Frankfurt Retreat in, in what's now Philadelphia. Uh, there was the Hartford Retreat in Connecticut. So you see, that was a retreat from the world and the pressures of the world. But it was also an opportunity where by treating the patient individually and coaxing them to learn to recontrol their behavior and their emotions and their thoughts, suppress them really, they could be induced to come back to sanity. And the architecture was important. It needed to give a sense that you weren't being confined. You needed nice views to help encourage positive thoughts. You had rewards and punishments in some sense, but you weren't allowed to beat a patient. That was something that the asylum insisted was going to be part of the past. What you tried to do was by giving them a graded set of privileges if they behave better, to coax them back to normality. And so the ultimate bit would be, well, you were allowed out into the extensive grounds. You took tea with the asylum superintendent and you behaved appropriately. You didn't smash the crockery or throw the tea at him. And so there it was. It was a kind of utopian community that would fix the disruptions in people's emotional life. That was the plan. And in the early years, the hospitals did seem to restore a number of people. I think the earliest alienists were often quite charismatic figures who encouraged their staff. It was really a kind of Christian turn-the-other-cheek thing. Mental patients didn't necessarily respond nicely when you treated them nicely. They, they might well attack you or express verbally their discontent or remain in a, in a shell. So teaching the attendants who had a lot of day-to-day -day contact with the patient to treat them with kindness, to turn the other cheek, never to offer violence. That seems to have been genuinely part of things, I think, in those very early years. But what happened fairly quickly, certainly by the last third of the 19th century, is a couple of things. First of all, the claim that they were going to cure 70 or 80 percent turned out to be wild, wildly exaggerated. And particularly once the asylums became bureaucratic operations, the individuality that the system depended on started to disappear. Patients who didn't recover or die within the first year, which a number of them did because they were often victims of underlying physical diseases or they were old, those who didn't recover tended to stay on for years and years. And over time, what that meant was the population of asylums was more and more composed of chronic patients. And the identity of the asylum shifted from being a curative institution to being a place where people were dumped and kept out of, out of the way. Uh, moreover, asylums rapidly grew in size. So the first few asylums that were built had perhaps... 80 or 100 or 120 patients. But by the, the last third of the 19th century, we had asylums with 1,000, 2,000, 4,000. Eventually, by the early 20th century, as many as 10 or 12,000 patients. So what you had was a small town, actually a not very small town. And the idea of individualized treatment obviously went south. Simultaneously, what that meant was that the image of the mental patient once again acquired enormous stigma. And it was stigma added to by the psychiatrists themselves. 
uh, they had to explain away the second and third generations, why it was that at the beginning they'd claimed they'd cure 70 or 80% of people, but now it looked as though they cured maybe 25 or 30 or 35% and, and the rest not at all. And the account that emerged blamed mental illness on the body and blamed it on the fact that these were biologically defective people. And the language became extraordinarily harsh. They were degenerates. They were subhuman. They were people, in the words of a British psychiatrist, who, if they were puppies, would be drowned in a horse pond because they were just polluting the what we now call the gene pool. That was a terrible period. It was a period where conditions in the asylums deteriorated. It was very hard to get the public to support them properly. They were just boarding houses. And the people running the show were increasingly explaining their own failures by blaming the victims. They were just, they were the products of, this was of course the period when Charles Darwin's evolutionary theories had come to the fore. So this was a case of people where evolution had run in reverse and they'd gone backwards. They'd become below savages, almost below animals. They'd lost, they didn't even have animals' instincts to protect themselves. And so this reinforced an atmosphere of extreme pessimism and uh, the very opposite of what we saw when the psychiatry got started. And you mentioned biological explanations. So I wanted to ask you about the rise of germ theory and how that led to the focal infection theory. Could you tell us about that? It wasn't a very comfortable position, I think, for ambitious psychiatrists, such as they were, they were a minority of the profession, to be basically custodians of mental patients with no real prospects to do anything about it. America started to experiment with sterilization. That, too, wasn't a very comfortable thing because you were treating patients, if that's the right word, with an intervention that wasn't for their own good particularly, but for societies. But perhaps this was the era, meaning the very end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, when in medicine as a whole, germ theory was coming to the fore as an explanation for all sorts of illness. And it was a very powerful theory. It linked medicine for the first time to the laboratory, to the microscope, to various other technologies that could measure what was going wrong. And that worked very well in surgery when we got antisepsis or asepsis, keeping germs out, and anesthesia together, which allowed all kinds of surgical interventions that had previously been impossible. Even in general medicine, although there weren't antibiotics yet, there were vaccines. And there were vaccines that sometimes were very powerful and, and made a dramatic effect on people's imaginations. So diphtheria, for example, killed many children. I can't imagine much worse than watching your child's airway close up and them dying in front of your eyes. When on New Year's Eve, uh, Christmas Eve, I'm sorry, the first vaccine was administered and it, it prevented this awful disease, that was dramatic. So People began to wonder, mental illness is biological, but perhaps it's biological in a way we can intervene in. Perhaps it too is an infectious problem. There was a further development in the early 20th century that reinforced that idea and seemed to give it legitimacy. 
large number of patients, perhaps as many as 20% of male admissions, fewer women, for a reason I'll come to in a moment, suffered from something that was known in the 19th century as general paralysis of the insane. As that title suggests, at the end of the process, after a long period of physical decline and increasingly bizarre delusions that you were Jesus, that you were Napoleon, that you were George Washington or Mary, mother of God. You gradually became paralyzed. You bedridden. You usually died from the bed sores or from choking on your own vomit. It was a dreadful way to go. That had been identified back as early as the 1820s in Paris. But many people thought it was the end state of all insanity during the 19th century. Gradually, though, they began to think perhaps it was something different. And suspicion was that it might have an origin in sex. And in and it, as it turned out, as we discovered in the early 20th century, it was actually tertiary syphilis. Syphilis goes underground if untreated. It, dam- it can damage the heart. So people died from heart attacks 20 years on from an, an infection. Or it can attack the central nervous system, the spine and the brain. That was established. So here was an infectious form of insanity. Perhaps something else like that was going on. Well, if that was the case, you had to trace where that infection was and eliminate it. But remember, no penicillin, no other antibiotics. So what you had to do was resort to what one of its proponents called surgical bacteriology. You had to take out the offending bits. And the initial idea was, well, Teeth and tonsils are very close to the brain, and they're often infected. People have, particularly back then, but even now, untreated rotting teeth. The poisons were getting to the brain. The brain was was reacting by going mad. So you pulled teeth, and you took out tonsils, and it didn't work. Well, do you give up the idea? No, you know, you've got all those germs sloshing around in your mouth and in your throat, and you swallow, and where does it go? It goes down to the stomach, it goes into the intestines, it it goes elsewhere in the body. And so Henry Cotton, who was the prime proponent of this, and there was a man in Britain named Thomas Chivers Graves in Birmingham who was thinking along similar lines, they began taking out other body parts. So cotton removed stomachs, he moved sp- removed spleens, he removed colons. He claimed he was curing 80 or 85% of his patients, just like the beginning of the process we talked about. In fact, patients who got the, the most extensive treatment died at the rate of about 45% of those operated on. Cotton in print acknowledged deaths of about 30% of the patients. And somehow he wasn't called to account for this. This seemed a reasonable thing to not everybody, there were critics certainly of his work, but for about 17 years until he died suddenly of a heart attack, uh, he proceeded to do this. He was brought to Britain twice and lauded as psychiatry's Lister, the man who had transformed surgery. Well, here was the guy who was transforming psychiatry. Meantime, he was leaving thousands of main patients in his wake. At one point, because there was criticism of his work, uh, an inquiry was set up, and they asked his mentor, the guy who trained him, Adolf Meyer, who was the leading psychiatrist in America, to, to run that study. 
And Maya said, well, look, I'm much too busy, but I'll send my assistant. And he sent a young woman named Phyllis Greenacre. She spent about two years following up and produced a devastating report, which should have ended things, except Maya suppressed it. He kept it completely hidden. It only emerged partly when I began research in this area, although other people had sort of begun to sniff around. She had by then become one of the four or five leading psychoanalysts in America. She deserted Meyer and moved to Freud. I spent about three hours talking with her and then lots of correspondence recreating that. And she had the most phenomenal memory. Uh, and I had a way to discover that. She, she had done follow-up on patients. In one case, she'd gone to an isolated farmhouse to follow up on a patient. And the door kind of creaked open and a, an unkempt woman with her bra showing ushered her in. That was the mother. She was looked there to look at the daughter, who was still clearly quite disturbed. And then there was a lodger who was also disturbed. So she did her follow-up and went to leave, and the door was locked from the outside. It's sort of like a gothic thing. <laughs> what on earth has happened here? So she's very scared. She wants to get out of this house with three mad women. And the uh, hostess suggests she jumps out of the kitchen window. Well, that's about a 15-foot drop, and she doesn't look like the look of that. So she goes down and finds the coal cellar and scrambles out over the coal, out through the coal cellar. It turns out that the husband locked the house every day when he left for work so the women couldn't get out, right? So she tells me that story 60 years on. And I think, God, I, I don't know. And I come to write about it, and I, I look through my, her, I have her patient notes. That's one of the fun things when you do history. You, you come across these wonderful sources. And I thought, it must be in there. And I leaf through, and there it was. And exactly as she described it to me 60 years later, it obviously made this enormous impression on her, there was this encounter so I had great confidence then in her, in her memories of this. And it really was a quite, it was one of a whole series of experiments on mental patients that took place in the teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s. Arguably, the early experiments with um, modern drugs followed the same kind of pattern. It was some odd idea or um, a hint that something might work. And off you went. And uh, enthusiasts didn't have controls over what they were doing. They just did things and they claimed they worked. And there were a whole string of these things. Some of them uh, we know about. I think everybody knows about lobotomy, has heard of lobotomy at least. ECT or electroshock therapy, as it was originally called, still survives. And in fact, is the only one of these treatments that still uh, has legitimacy and seems for some depressed patients to to have some efficacy for reasons we d we don't understand, uh, and it's very controversial. Besides, I should say, so there were a lot of these things in that period, all of them, a sort of an attempt to cure by driven by enthusiasts who then managed to convert the profession to their way of thinking, so. One of the great triumphs of the early, early 20th century medicine was the discovery of insulin. I've talked about how diphtheria, you watched your child die slowly. The same thing in those days with diabetes. But once you had insulin, 
uh, diabetes became a chronic disorder, not not an immediately uh, fatal one. But insulin, if it was if you got too much of it, put you into a coma. And somebody had the bright idea of, well, maybe if we take people out of circulation for a while, uh, we put them in an artificial coma, remove them from the world, they'll come back better. And again, uh, the gentleman who put forward this theory and tried it out claimed he was curing 80% of his patients. And for a long time, insulin coma units existed in most mental hospitals, even into the 1950s, when finally controlled trials were done and it turned out it didn't work at all. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And when soldiers began to break down, the question was, what were you going to do? And the answer really was, well, you would use a primitive form of psychotherapy, and you had to rapidly expand the number of people treating these huge number of, of casualties. And thinking about all of these supposed cures, did patients consent? Were they asked their opinions on these treatments? Generally not. Uh, That's one of the things that locking people up in these asylums, depriving of their civil rights, claiming that their opinions were in fact worthless because they were mad, uh, made them extraordinarily vulnerable. And Patients' families were desperate, even when they were consulted, as, as sometimes happens. The authority, you know, they were told this was going to work. And who were they to second-guess the experts? When lobotomy was done, which involved severing portions of the frontal lobe of the brain, the early operations were often done under local anesthetic. So the patient is fully conscious. Holes are being drilled in his or her skull, Uh, something that looks like a butter knife is going down and damaging their brain, okay? And the question was how much damage to inflict. And by a process of trial and error, the guys who were Walter Freeman and Jim Watts, who were the duo who who first promoted lobotomy in America, uh, they decided that when a patient started to get confused, that was the time to stop cutting. So they talked the patient through the operation and Freeman, who, was, who even made movies of, of these things, kept transcript of what went, went on. So we have one that opens a chapter where the patient... This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Actually, tells them to stop, stop, stop. And they just ignore him. And the operation proceeds, and the poor guy is rendered pretty hopeless by the end of it. As I say, sometimes families would be consulted. Sometimes patients volunteered. After all, they were told this was the the best possible treatment. It was going to take away their worry. Newspapers, the New York Times, the Saturday Evening Post, ran stories about this miracle cure. 
journalists very sus, you know, even today, I read medical journalism with a very suspicious eye because we're always after the latest breakthrough. It's very uncritical very often, and that's exactly what happened with all of these things. Freeman was the subject of a profile, the man with the golden ice pick, because he developed a variant of lobotomy because he was there weren't that many neurosurgeons, and the operation took two or three hours, and it was very complicated. Uh, Freeman developed a technique where he could do 20 of these in an afternoon, and he did. He would use electroshock to make the patient unconscious, peel back their eyelid, the orbit, the, the bone above the eye is rather thin. He would take an ice pick, literally, from his drawer at home, and a hammer, smash it through the bone, wiggle it about, and then do the same thing on the other eye. And that was called a transorbital lobotomy, and he taught He said, any damn fool can learn this in 20 minutes, even a psychiatrist. And he barnstormed around the country demonstrating this technique, and then other people followed in his footsteps. So it's a really pretty gross thing. John Fulton, who had played a role in bringing lobotomy about, was professor at Yale, and he wrote to Freeman and said, wouldn't it be easier to just use a shotgun on the brain? So he's a very dark kind of period, I think. And it is yeah, striking how easy it was to ignore the mental patient's wishes and how easy it was to coax families who were desperate to agree to these kinds of experiments. Well, so far we focused quite heavily on the physical treatments, but I wanted to ask you about the rise of talking therapy and psychoanalysis. When did that really take off in America? Right. So Anybody who's learned even a bit about psychoanalysis in America knows the story of Freud coming to America, to Worcester, Massachusetts, and being given an honorary doctorate, the only academic honor he got in his career. Freud was very ambivalent about that because he hated America and his visit didn't change his mind. But on the other hand, this was sort of recognition. And it established a small bridgehead for psychoanalysis in America, which remained quite tiny into the the 1930s. It became fashionable among a literary crowd. It surfaced in Broadway plays and began to surface in the movies when the movie business got started. In novels, it was a very attractive theory for for writers and even artists. So it, it had some purchase there. The ideas spread. But in fact, there were probably only 150 psychoanalysts in 1930 in America, very, very few. Their numbers were augmented as the 30s moved on by the Nazis, because the Nazis tried to suppress psychoanalysis and many of its practitioners were Jewish. And obviously, if they caught them, that was the end. So many fled, some to England, including Freud and his daughter, and a lot to America. And then when World War II broke out, American soldiers like their counterparts elsewhere, began to break down. We, we all know about shells, or we know something about shell shock emerging in trench warfare in World War I, but American troops suffered three times as many psychiatric casualties in World War II, proportionately. And when soldiers began to break down, the question was, what were you going to do? And the answer really was, well, you would use a primitive form of psychotherapy, and you had to rapidly expand the number of 
people treating these huge number of, of casualties. So they got very quick training, and it, it tended to be an watered-down version of psychoanalysis because the head of Army Psychiatry, a man named Bill Menninger, from the Menninger Clinic in Kansas, uh, was in some ways an exponent of psychoanalysis. And it turned out, for some soldiers, brief treatment near the front, basically tea or if they were American coffee and not too much sympathy and don't let your buddies down and you've got to go back to the front. It's just exhaustion. It was called combat exhaustion or combat neurosis. Those folks got used to treating mental illness that way. And after the war, their ideas and the claim that they'd been successful, which was wildly exaggerated, fueled the growth of psychoanalysis. And manager became simultaneously the president of the American Psychoanalysis analytic association and the president of the american psychiatric association and pretty soon the most prestigious branches of psychiatry in america and the medical training in medical schools was dominated by psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis dominated in america from 1945 through into the late 70s if you were rich, that's the treatment you preferred. And it was reinforced by all the novels and the, the movies that came out that emphasized the psychological roots of mental disorder. The, the most striking example in some ways is Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound, which sort of unpacks the apparent murderer as really the innocent victim and a, a victim of what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. And the analyst acts as detective. Psychoanalysis appeal is partly because it tells detective stories about where people's troubles come from. So it was very, very powerful. It seemed to dominate the profession. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the 70s and into the 80s, it crumbled. And it's now a distinctly minority taste. It's a very small fraction of American psychiatry and even psychiatry elsewhere. Uh, and biology came back with a vengeance. We moved to the era, I mean, it's partly fueled by the discovery of the modern drugs, antipsychotics and antidepressants. But we moved to an era where biology ruled again. And indeed, American psychiatry started to treat mental illness as purely a, a matter of disease brains. And they thought they knew better because now they started to discover things called neurotransmitters and to think that uh, these were the source of people's upset. And uh, in, the, in the 1990s, everybody was taught if you were depressed, it's because your serotonin levels were out of whack and what you needed was an SSRI, a selected serotonin reuptake in inhibitor, so that your brain slushed around with more serotonin and you were happy as a clam. That's scientific nonsense, but it was great marketing copy. And it was something seized on by patients and their families. One of the problems with psychoanalysis was who did it blame for the mental disorders of young people? Their parents especially their mummies. Refrigerator mothers were the source of schizophrenia. You can imagine if you had an autistic child or you had a schizophrenic child or an adolescent, a young person, to be told that you caused this, that you really didn't want this child, you had frozen them out, you had you know, acted to bring this into being. So quite naturally, many, many families found a biological account 
of what was going on, very attractive. And patients tended to as well. One of the things about mental illness, of course, is there's nothing visible. It's in your head. And it's very easy for people to think, oh, you're just putting it on or pull yourself together. What do you mean you're depressed? Come on, look at life around you. You know, wake up and smell the coffee and be be happy. Well, it doesn't quite that work that way if you're seriously depressed. Uh, it doesn't work at all, obviously, if you're having delusions and hallucinations. They don't just vanish. So for people to be told, no, you have a real illness, and, and it's not your fault. And it's not your parents' fault. And we have treatments in the form of drugs that will make you better. It was a very, very appealing vision. Uh, and it's one of the things that helped collapse psychoanalysis. Another thing was that in terms of treating the more serious forms of mental illness, at least, it was quite useless. Much debate about how much good it does in, in other kinds of illness. But Freud himself thought that psychoanalysis would only work with neurotic patients, with hysterical patients. It was his followers in America who took things a step further and said, no, no, we can we can understand sch- schizophrenia in Freudian terms and we can treat it that way, which wasn't accurate, actually. <laughs> that was Andrew Skull. His new book, Desperate Remedies, is published by Alan Lane and is available to buy now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.